They told her all the usual things, of course, about life going on and how Smudge wouldn't want her to be so unhappy. But she seemed entirely lost to the world, until someone at the base arranged a party for her to meet a young pilot officer. I'm told he was very charming and from a very good family. Doris saw him a few times, and they spent one brief night together. She never met him again after that, although when she found she was pregnant a short time later... She tried to make contact and even travelled to Cambridge to find him with Nan's sister, Auntie Anne Clary, along for support. They saw him, just for a moment, walking through the lobby of their hotel on the arm of another woman. Doris never said a word to him, Auntie Anne said later. We just got on the next train and came home. My grandfather, Monty, and my grandmother, Nan sent her off the island away from the reach of scandal to stay with Auntie Anne and her husband Jim Clary in Wiltshire. And when her time came, it was their daughters, Eileen and Peggy, who kissed and waved her off to the hospital in a taxi. Several hours later, a friendly hospital orderly rode his motorbike up the Bullford Hill to bring the news to the Clarys. It's a boy, he shouted, born at 4 a.m. It was the morning of January the 19th, 1942. I was to be christened Michael Patrick Dumbell-Smith. Getting the news back to the family on Sheppey was a fairly tricky business. A standard telegram sent to the little Sheerness post office was bound to start tongues clacking. So with her usual foresight, Nan had composed a coded message to be sent when the baby arrived so the family would know if the parcel was a boy or a girl. A girl would simply have arrived safely. But if it was a boy, the telegram would read, Parcel arrived safely, tied with string. While the heavy bombing continued along the coastline of Kent, Doris was persuaded to stay on in Wiltshire for safety's sake, with only the occasional weekend foray to Sheerness to see her parents. We were all housed together in the civilian quarters in one of the army camps, my mother caring for me at home with Auntie Anne, while Uncle Jim, Eileen and Peggy worked in the Ordnance Depot on the assembly of camouflage nets. So the family escaped the worst of the war, except for the occasion when a German plane dropped a bomb on Beacon Hill near their house, creating an enormous crater. My mother and Eileen shared the same bed in one tiny room, with my cot beside them. In the instant the bomb dropped, and with the sound of hell breaking loose around them, they grabbed me and scrambled frantically under their bed, by 1945, the bombing had stopped, so Mum and I left Bulford to return home to Nan and Monty on the island, and to a new courtship and another marriage for my mother. There was never a question in anyone's mind that Nan was the Pike family's strong, tough centre. Born Edith Emmeline Kathleen O'Keefe in Londonderry in 1885, she died in Bedfordshire almost a hundred years later, holding my hand. I thought she was absolutely marvellous, and I'm shameless in the way I love her still. With white hair and the warmest dark Irish eyes, she had beautiful, healthy skin, having grown up washing with soap and cold water. And I can still feel the heat of her flesh between shoulder and chin where she held me scrunched against her to whisper a good night. When I was tiny, she would sometimes let me share her bed. A child has an eager eye for the grotesque, and I can well remember the fascinating sight of Nan's false teeth in a glass on the bedside table, 
and also craning my head underneath the bed to inspect the rusty patch on the springs that had been caused by the steam rising from the chamber pot placed underneath it. Made for a child to snuggle against, Nan was my personal hot water bottle and back-tickling machine. She exuded a comfortable air of protection. Nan did her best to spoil me, and she succeeded overwhelmingly. Even though my grandfather, Monty, died when I was a child, I remember him very vividly. Montague Pike. I love that name. It's rather grand, don't you think? But in fact, Monty worked as a porter for a fish shop in Sheerness. Physically, at least, he was a little man. Nan was five foot eight, and she towered over him. Trim and dapper in his Sunday best, his normal expression could make him look quite severe. Until he smiled, that is. And then he had the warmest face imaginable. He'd sit in his chair in the parlour, first polishing his brogue shoes to a mirror finish, then trying desperately to find the basis of a shine on his old lace-up work boots. I've always remembered those particular boots. They had a living sadness about them, and I used that image many years later to create my boots in Phantom of the Opera. Mont was the son and grandson of Dorset Coachman, he had worked around horses himself before the war as a stable boy and sometime jockey. Now he carried fish, picking it up from the station and bringing it to Castle's Fish Shop in the Sheerness High Street. It was hard, heavy and often dirty work, which must have been an irritant to someone so fastidious. I loved combing his silvery hair, endlessly parting and reparting it, pretending to be his barber while he sat by the window trying to read the paper. The moment of warning would arrive. Come on now, he'd say. I've had enough of this. I'm sorry, sir, I'd tell my customer, but I haven't quite finished yet. I can never leave well enough alone. You really need a little more off the top, sir. I'll give you more off the top, my boy. And still I'd keep on, teasing him relentlessly, until he suddenly rose from his chair with a dangerous gleam in his eye, my cue to run like bejesus. With Mont at my heels, I quickly learned to become a good runner and also developed the knack of diving through the ground floor parlour window. My very first stunt work was motivated solely by the wish to avoid a thrashing. A new face began to appear with great regularity in my grandparents' home in 1945. I used to sit in the window seat of their front parlour to watch and wait for him. His name was Lionel Dennis Ingram, but everyone called him Den. A rather handsome, dark-eyed man, he was an army sergeant stationed at Canterbury. On Den's early courtship visits, he always brought along a gift for me, airplanes mostly, which I loved. Planes provided a kind of mystical bond between Smudge and me. For years I clung to the dream that someday I would follow in his footsteps by joining the Air Force as a pilot. With the end of the war, my comfortable world of women began to change as the men returned. There was enormous excitement when my cousin Eileen's fiancé, Tony Weir, came home from a Japanese prisoner of war camp, and their long-delayed marriage was set for July 1945. For me, dressed in a pageboy's suit of cream satin, it was a day of total humiliation. Six weeks later, my mother and Den were married too. No one believed it was ever the great love match Mum had had with Smudge, but I think that more than anything she wanted me to have a father and a proper family life. So at age three I was given a new name, Michael Ingram. Den left the army to manage the Bexley Heath branch of David Greggs, a large Scottish-based chain of grocery stores. 
and we all settled into flat life over the shop on the high street. My great friend in the shop was Sam, the man hired to help around the place. Somewhere in his thirties, he was like another kid for me to play with. Nowadays, I suppose Sam would be a judge retarded, but he was routinely accepted by everyone in those days, his innocent simplicity protected, at least by most people. I used to play hide-and-seek with him, teasing him mercilessly from some dark cranny in the shop. Sam! I'm here, Sam! You'll never find me! I'll get you, you little rascal, he'd say. And he'd try to find me, but never could. I've never forgotten him. Years later, I used my memories of him as a framework for the role of Charlie, the retarded hero in Flowers for Algernon. Our sitting room was a, a vast place and there was a big bedroom on the floor above. When we first arrived, Mum and Den had the use of it, but it wasn't long before they had to shift to accommodate the arrival of Den's parents. Morris and Ethel Ingram appeared one day, complete with bag and baggage, accompanied by their prized upright piano, and stayed on with us for the rest of my mother's married life. Everyone called Grandpa Morris Ingram Pop. I liked him. Quiet and unassuming, he was a nice man never given to scenes and upsets. Everyone liked Pop, but he was completely dominated by his wife, Ethel. My nickname for her was Queen Ethelred, a fussy, prim and brittle sort of woman, querulous and highly strung. She was never anyone's idea of a cuddly granny. She used to chain-smoke, and her jerky gestures made it look as if she'd learned the habit while watching Barbara Stanwyck films. She'd spend the mornings in bed, sitting bolt upright in her grey hairnet, smoking and smelling of a mixture of tobacco and the lily of the valley scent she always wore. She'd occasionally look up from her newspaper to call for...